Welcome back to Open Heart Conversations, where we come together as community to explore the world's enduring spiritual and religious traditions. I'm your host, Reverend Renee Rossi, and I'm so happy to be back with all of our viewers and our listeners. Today, we are exploring a really timely and important topic, tending to grief through ritual. And we have the most perfect guest to take us on this journey. He is an award-winning author, an artist, a ritualist, and a teacher, Day Shilkret. Day, welcome to Open Heart Conversations. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, this is, I'm just such a huge fan of your work and, and your message and, and everything that you do. So I'm really excited to, to have this conversation. Um, I wish I we were doing it at a, like a lunch table and we had food and a little wine and yes, yeah, so I'll just pretend. Yes. Let's pretend. <laughs> So I wanted to start with um, a rather personal question. I was hoping that you would share your story with us, um, particularly your story of how um, you came to write your first book, um, which is titled Morning Altars, A Seven-Step Practice to Nourish Your Spirit Through Nature, Art, and Ritual. Um, I know there was, um, there was some grief and there were some things that um, really were the were the catalyst for, for your work and for finding and developing this process. So can you speak to that time in your life? Sure. That, um, yeah, the book was almost a consequence of, um, a certain time of my life. It was born from that. Um, but I'd say it, it began much earlier than the writing of the book, which was, I'd say around 2010, 2011, but again, it's like really hard to say where this all began, but my father died in 2011. And that year I also went through a major relational split of divorce, but we weren't married, but it was a domestic partnership. And, um, and my days were almost like walking around like a daydream. You know, if you've experienced death or you've experienced divorce, you know that, you know, the grief can be, it can undo you in a way. And it can be very hard to attend to the regular regularities of everyday life. You know, just to get on a phone call or to answer emails can feel like scaling a mountain when you're in the, in the ebb and flow of grief and when you're so close to the loss um, so my life was pretty undone at the time. And, um, the consequence of my father dying also gifted me with a dog. Um, and it's funny that we're talking about this because this week was her five-year anniversary of her death. Um, and so we can go into that in a bit, but, um, Rudy and I, Rudy was a miniature schnauzer. She was my dad's dog for nine years. And then I adopted her literally on his deathbed. Um, you know, I basically said, I had, I got you. I said that to, to her. She, <laughs> I mean, maybe this is me projecting, but she seemed to really understand it. And, um, and she saved my life at the beginning because my tendency with that grief, with that kind of heartbreak was to hermit myself and to stay inside and to think, and to um, be overwhelmed and to not know what to do with my grief and that loss. And so Rudy needed her 
her needs tended to every day. And so we would find ourselves on these long walks through the park in the hills of Wildcat Canyon, which is where I was living in the Bay Area. And, um, and on these walks, I would be, you know, my head would be down because I was thinking a lot and she would just be curious and interested and, you know, would really lead the way. And um, on those walks, I would just find these amazing gifts. I don't know what else to call them of nature, uh, a crow feather, you know, a cluster of elderberries, um, eucalyptus bark, whatnot. And they would pop me out of my grief for just a second. And I would be able to see the world again. And then I kind of fell back into it. And anyway, so the story goes, her and I would walk to the top of this hill. And one morning it was right past dawn. It was beautiful. The light was beautiful. Everything was beautiful. I was totally wrecked still. And underneath this eucalyptus tree were these amber colored mushrooms that were growing and glistening in the morning dew. And I don't know, it was maybe years and years of just playing in nature, but I was, I sat under that tree and I started to rearrange the mushrooms and I started to pull eucalyptus caps and eucalyptus barks. And I created in an hour, which felt like a minute, I created what I've come to call morning altars, um, which are really impermanent nature art um, and dedicational art, devotional art. And that morning I looked down and I looked in and I recognized that for the first time in probably seven or eight months that I felt lighter. I wasn't totally smushed by my grief. In a way, I was transforming it. I was metabolizing it through making something with my hands. When I really looked at it, I was taking many pieces, like those eucalyptus caps or bark or mushrooms, and bringing them into some semblance of order, something that looked orderly and symmetrical and beautiful. And that reminded me that there was such a thing because grief is so destabilizing and it can feel like everything's just in chaos. So just by bringing those pieces together, it lightened me in a way that I hadn't experienced since my dad died. And then I dedicated it to my healing and to my grief and to the loss in my life. And in that moment, I made a challenge to myself. Could I return to that spot for 30 days and make one every day? Because I felt how significant it was for me. And so I did. Rudy and I would go on these walks and we I'd collect material. I'd sit under the same tree. I'd spend an hour making a new piece of art. I devoted or dedicated it, dedicate it to something in my life or something in the world that needed dedication and acknowledgement. And that was like 11 years ago and I haven't stopped. I make one every day. And so, um, you know, in a way I was transforming my grief into beauty and I was, I was metabolizing that grief into something that really fed my life. And now it's feeding thousands of people who are going out into where they live and making 
art out of nature from their place and then dedicating it to what's going on in their lives. And then suddenly this one seed that I was sprouting for myself and, and really came from a desperate need, you know, to really feel like I had some ground under me. Um, and now it's, you know, it's amazing to witness like, you know, every week just getting so many images and, and DMS and Instagram tags and all of these things from people in, you know, Peru, Poland, England, Australia, you know, Iran, um, where people are, are making, making these pieces for their lives and from their land. And so, my work's been really dedicated to bridging the, the, the pieces of grief and loss, beauty and creativity, and meaning-making and ritual. And that's, that's really the nature of my first book, and it's also the nature of my second book that just came out. Thank you um, for sharing that story. I, I think, you know, I love how you have all this evidence and all this proof how this is rippling out in the world all over all over the planet really because i feel like what you are giving people is something that they can anchor themselves to in a moment when they as you described it as chaos you know when when you really experience grief you don't feel like um you're really tethered to anything and so um even just to have those moments of you're, you're okay in this moment, even if it's just for this one second, you know, it really um, can save people. It's a strange thing to say, because I completely agree with what you just said. And at the same time, through another lens, grief is the ultimate tethering, you know, because it's basically saying, I love this being or this place or this whoever relationship, and I lost them and I miss them because I love them. So when there's grief in, in the field, it's really a, it's a human skill to be able to express love. But in our modern culture, we see it as an affliction and something to get over because we're completely obsessed with productivity and, you know, and growth and being on top of our games and all of these things. And we don't have any tolerance for, for anything that can kind of like humble us or, you know, wreck us or heartbreak us. And so oftentimes we see grief as something to overcome, like an obstacle, but it is really deep down inside. It's a tethering. And I find that, you know, nature and art and ritual are ways to remember that tethering because it just so easily gets displaced and frayed and impossible to, 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 you know, to feel into in our modern lives. But, um, you know, making those altars for me was a way to actually remember the value of my grief and, and to see it as a human making capacity. You know, it actually made me more human. My grief makes me more human. It makes my heart tender. It lets me have compassion. It allows me to see the temporariness of life and to not take it for granted. And so that, I mean, what a, what, what's a better human making and especially a, an adult making experience, you know, I mean, and we need more of that, but we need to transform our understanding of grief. I love that you said it, it makes you more human. I, yeah. I totally agree. And 
And to your point, you know, we are always avoiding the thing that's uncomfortable and painful. And, you know, grief doesn't always allow you to avoid it. It takes over. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an, it, it, it's an opportunity to pivot or lean towards, not turn away from. Um, but sometimes, you know, I was just listening to a podcast on my lunch break and it was all about Ukraine and, you know, there's amazing devastation happening there. My family came from the, around that area, you know, three generations ago. And there's, you know, sometimes when there's so much loss, like a lot of loss or the loss is too big to hold on your own, the grief actually, it's like, it's important to grieve, but it's important to grieve with other people. And it's important to be held in that space. You know, my own tradition, my own culture, which is a Jewish culture, you know, we do death and dying pretty well. And we have, you know, a, like a, like a grieving family days, weeks after their, or seven days for sure after the death, you know, the house becomes what we call a Shiva house, which is basically a way for friends and family to show up and cook meals for and listen to and, and assist in the everyday realities of life, because we understand that the grieving family can't do that. But really what that's teaching me is that sometimes when the loss is so big um, and that's subjective for sure, that we need other people to hold our hands and say, I have you, you're not alone. I've got you in this, you know, let's walk through this threshold together. And that's, you know, so in a way, grief and loss are also community making endeavors. They're an opportunity for the people to come back together again and to remake themselves, you know? So for instance, like uh, last year, one of my best friends was diagnosed with breast cancer and, you know, her reality changed over, you know, in a, in a minute, her reality of how she understood herself from a healthy person to a sick person, how she understood her life changed. And I could see in talking to her that it was overwhelming her. And so we gather, I asked her if we could gather, you know, 10 of her best friends on a Zoom for a Zoom ritual, where I would ask her four questions and we lit candles together to honor her. Um, and, but really also what it did was that it gathered her people around her and then all 10 of us became much closer. So her grief and her transition also brought her people together. So that's another aspect of grief, which is that it's, it's a togethering experience. It can, it can, it doesn't always do this. There's no guarantee, but it can bring a community back together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so important. And it's important for the griever. It's important for, you know, other people to be more human, to support someone in their grief. You yeah. know, I think it, it goes both ways for sure. So, um, you know, you, let, let's start talking about rituals a bit. As <laughs> you so beautifully talked about morning altars and um, your, your most recent book, which is called Hello, Goodbye, 75 Rituals for Times of Loss, Celebration, and Change. Um, you know, you've described it as a ritual cookbook. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? <laughs> sure. Um, I think the easiest way in, the reason I call it a ritual cookbook is because I see ritual very akin to cooking. Um, 
And I'm very much trying to destigmatize this, that whatever people have around this word ritual, um, because I'm looking, my major purpose is that I'm, I'm interested in a ritual renaissance. I think it's what we need in the world right now. So much change, epic change is happening, both familial, ancestral, community-wise, nationally, globally. There's enormous amounts of change happening, and we need to learn how to make meaning with it. This is a very human-centric skill, our capacity to make meaning. Um, and especially by doing that, by making meaning, we can create a semblance of stability in the face of instability uh, and chaos. And so it gives us a temporary ground to stand on. So the reason I call it a cookbook, aside from the fact that I've literally created ritual recipes in it, um, for I think there's about 36 life transitions in the book, birth, death, miscarriage, divorce, losing a pet, um, many, many more. And, um, and I'm really trying to give the capacity to make meaning and make ritual back to the people because, and the people's imagination, because, you know, ritual, when you think about it, it can either feel like it belongs to religion. You know, it can, it could also feel like it belongs to particular cultures and traditions. Um, and there, and they do, you know, certain rituals do belong to certain people and certain rituals do belong to certain religions, but the function and functionality of ritual itself doesn't belong to anyone and it belongs to the people and it belongs, and it has to be reimagined. So ritual has that dual function. It can, it can be passed down. It can be traditional. It can live in a culture, right? It can be something that is. Um, stable and consistent and repetitive. And also it needs contemporary relevance. It needs to feel important to you or your, or a community. So ritual also needs to be reimagined and reinvented and repurposed. And it's the same thing about ingredients, by the way, for instance, my family has a recipe, mandel bread, which has been passed down through the, the women in our family. I grew up on this food. It's like a soft biscotti kind of thing, you know, and, but at the same time, I'm using a recipe that was passed down through the traditions. But when I make it, I particularly use like when I'm in California, I use California almonds or I use dried fruit of the season that we're in. So I like to change the recipe to suit my palate and also my values. And ritual is very similar. So, you know, I, for instance, as I said, grew up in Jewish culture and which has been an enormous teacher for me about rituals. I mean, since I was basically like one years old, you know, learning the rituals of my people, but it can't just be that because they turn stale very quickly. You know, it could just be like people reciting things and it doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. So I've always, as an artist, I'm always looking to reimagine, like, how can this be relevant? How can we bring things back together? Um, and so ritual has those dual components, but really, you know, it's very much in this, in the fashion of co cooking, for instance, like I have friends who are world famous chefs and I have friends who basically can barely cook an omelet and 
you know, and they're, of course they're different, but it's like, you got to eat. You're making a fancy meal or you're making a basic meal. You still are needing to eat. Rituals are very similar. There's elaborate rituals that feel very, I think, intimidating. And then there can be very simple everyday rituals where you barely need anything, but it's just the act of making the ritual that is transformative. And so rituals are very sim- you know, similar to food in that sense, which is like, mm-hmm. just make it, just try it. You know, Mm -hmm. and maybe what, you know, and not all rituals, quote unquote, work. I've been a part of many failed rituals, but it's the attempt that matters. You know, it's the attempt to make something meaningful to actually, as the ethnographer Arnold Van Genep says, to pivot towards the sacred Mm -hmm. in many moments, whether that's Mm -hmm. like going to bed at night or waking up in the morning, whether that's the loss of your pet or, you know, your child becoming a big brother or sister um, it's all of these moments have an opportunity for us to pivot towards the sacred and to just make something of those moments. I love that it feels like an invitation and also permission for people to use their creativity and to sort of do what feels good to them, what feels right to them, you know, what is meaningful to them instead of having to follow something that's prescribed and, and just doesn't connect yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why in, in this book, I talk a lot about the recipes, you know, in the ritual recipes in terms of like, Hey, just like if you make something and you're gluten-free or you're vegan or whatever, you substitute recipes to still make the meal. You know, I, I created these recipes and I constantly been telling my readers, you know, just if, if I'm telling you to bury something and you really, you know, you're vibing with burning something or whatever, like do that. These are just you know, these are just like, we're being creative. Mm -hmm. Ritual lives in the symbolic, you know, and as a modern culture, that's, that comes from a rational, you know, minded uh, history, you know, since the, like basically the 16, 1700s, you know, we value utilitarian um, and functional and rational behaviors. And that's why there's been a super decline in ritual, you know, devaluing of rituals because it, it it's rituals not interested in the functional or the rational. It's interested in the symbolic, you know, it's interested in you externalizing what's happening internally or you internalizing what's happening externally. It's an opportunity for your psyche to see in front of it what it's experiencing internally. So for example, there's a chapter in the book on um, surviving trauma and surviving near-death experiences. And one of the rituals, there's three parts to it, but it's simply the first part is um, in the, in the presence of witnesses, the person that survived a near-death experience to stack, to first write on each stone. There's like maybe, you know, 10 stones with some kind of uh, chalk or charcoal to write on each one, um, you know, essentially what what was lost from this near-death experience and to stack them up so high, kind of Jenga style, that they actually collapse. That's the first 
there's three parts of that ritual, but that's the first part is to keep stacking the stones until and as they collapse and to keep stacking them and let them collapse. Because there is an experience for someone who's who went through a trauma of an actual collapse of their being. And to be able to see the stones do it and to keep to keep on seeing the stones do it allows the grief to come forward. You know, and then there's the second part of the ritual, which is about washing the stones. So actually removing the writing on them, washing them, like really tending, forgiving, grieving, allowing, like all of these words that sure they're concepts. So it's very easy for us to like say like, you know, we really need to like forgive ourselves, but that's not enough, you know, but it's in the act of working with the elements like fire, water, air, or earth, where we can actually see the very thing happen symbolically. And then when we see it symbolically, it touches upon part of us that is way older than our rational mind, you know, and that part of our psyche very often needs symbolism to understand what's changed. That sounds like a very powerful ritual. Um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, what you're drawing my attention to really um, is how important the person doing the ritual is. Like they are maybe the most important part of the ritual. Um, you know, a lot of times some people, you think of rituals, you think of the items you have and the words you say, but really it's the human who's doing the ritual. Yeah. It's the actual person. <laughs> Seems yeah. so obvious, but also, you know, sometimes there's the focus is on the items and the things and, and really it's, it's what's happening to the person who's doing it. Yeah. You know, it's very similar. Yeah. I worked in the theater for, for many years on Broadway specifically. And so I, I come with that history to a lot of what I do and it informs a lot of who I am. And, you know, it's very similar to theater which is, you know, you have the props and you have the lighting and you have the set and the scenery and, you know, and that's all great. That's all necessary. Sometimes it's elaborate. Sometimes it's very simple, but it's about the story. You're telling a story and the actors are embodying characters and the other pieces they're being witnessed by an audience so those are the flavors also of ritual, which is that, you know, you have to be mindful of the set and setting. A lot of rituals, especially vulnerable ones, need privacy. You have to tend to the space beforehand. Everything matters, you know, the kind of lighting and the way you set the seats and who you invite or disinvite or exclude from the, from the ritual. There's a great book called The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker, who talks a lot about excluding skillfully. Um, all of these things matter, you know, but none of them guarantee that it goes anywhere. And the same thing with theater, you know, just because you have the right props and the right set and the right scenery and the right lighting, it doesn't mean that the show is successful. And just because the actors practice doesn't mean they're successful either. There has to be a willingness to see ritual as alive, just like live theater. And what's exciting about 
for instance, theater, live theater, is that there's a relationship that forms between the actor and the audience. And it's based on it being a vulnerable or tender relationship, meaning that anything could happen. You know, people could forget their lines. Something can be, go wrong with the set. I mean, someone's bringing a totally new take on the character or a new way of, you know, hitting a note in the song. And it's in that aliveness where you realize you're in something very precious. And it's the same thing that's that happens in ritual where, you know, there's no guarantee that because you do something, anything happens. So there's a, there has to be a willingness to bring your, you know, your vulnerable self to the ritual and, um, and to reflect on certain questions that could help kind of bring that vulnerability out. And, um, and then that action that really breaks, breaks your heart open. You know, for instance, we talked about my dog, Rudy. She died five years ago this week. Um, right after, and there's a whole chapter I talk about this in the book called a uh, loss of a pet. And, um, and there was a whole, there was a time, you know, her and I were tethered to each other quite literally with the leash, you know, every day for nine years with that leash twice a day, at least, you know, and then the day after she died, the leash was just sitting by the front door had no purpose anymore. I couldn't throw it out. So I decided to ritualize that moment because I needed to see the end of the, of that particular part of our relationship. Otherwise it meant nothing. You know, all those walks would, would mean nothing if the ending didn't mean anything. So I took that leash and I was inspired by my Jewish cultures, um, we have a certain tradition of, of um, rendering clothes. Certain cultures do hair. Our, we do clothes. We tear our clothes when there's mourning. Some of us that don't want to tear our clothes, we, wore, we wear a torn ribbon over our heart so that we can remember and other people can see that and witness us as mourners. And so I tore or cut her leash and I turned that leash from a routine object into a ritual object because I wore that little cut. It's right here, by the way. I keep it on my altar. Um, I wore this little ribbon over on my jacket over my heart for a year. And that was a way for me to remember our relationship and my longing for her. And also it was a way for other people to ask me what it's about. And so, so it was an opportunity for many conversations to be points of remembering her. And, um, and so I, you know, I really just made that up on the spot. Um, but it was a way for me to really, um, to use my skill of ritualizing or um, creating, you know, doing symbolic actions, which was the cutting of this cord. This has no purpose. Like most people would say a cut leash is like, it's garbage. The, you, I destroyed the purpose of the leash by doing this, right? Mm -hmm. But I created, I gave it another purpose, which is purely symbolic. And the symbolism 
is a way for my psyche to both remember my dog, long for her, and also, um, you know, really connect into the grief I have still, which is mm-hmm. really my love for her. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I have read that chapter of your book, and I am so um, grateful that you you created those rituals um, because, you know, so many of us have pets that we adore and that we pour so much love into and, and they pour back into us. And, um, yeah. you know, having a, a first step to take on, on how to face that and and something that you can do to honor that love and that relationship, I think is, is so healing to, for so many people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we don't really have many collective ways of of grieving our pets, um, you know, and walking through that threshold and our culture. I mean, I tell a story in the book about like days after she died, um, I had to change a flight and, you know, the person I was like, I have a death in the family to the flight, to the, um, the person, I don't know what they're called, the customer service. And, um, and they said, Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, do you have a death certificate? And I said, no, not really. I don't, I wasn't given one from the vet. And she said, oh, it's a dog or it's an animal. I said, yeah. She said, oh, they're not, we don't consider that family. And that just pierced me. You know, um, she was more than family to me. So having that, having a cultural understanding of how we treat loss and how we, you know, how we, you know, certain things matter, certain things don't matter, um, how we respect and honor our grief. I mean, we really are in a grief illiterate culture and a death phobic culture. And, um, and so that was, that was a hard pill to swallow. So part of what I'm doing in that chapter is really giving people resources and acknowledging and affirming that this creature matters to you and that they're the beginning of their lives and the middle of their life mattered. So their ending must matter too. You know, that's the full breath of their life. So, but most, we, most of us don't know what to do in those moments because we're so heartbroken about what's happening. And we feel like we're kind of like floundering and trying to keep this creature alive. So you know, actually having some guidance or a recipe to say, you know, here are some things you can do to make this moment meaningful. If you don't make it meaningful, it becomes meaningless. And that's a great way to suppress emotion. That's a great way to be in denial. That's a great way to miss what's happening, to honor this creature. You know, Um, my family did that with our childhood dog and I regret it to this day. You know, we, she had a stroke and we dropped her off at the vet to euthanize her. And we didn't, we weren't even there with her at the end of that, mm-hmm. you know, and that's really heartbreaking because we were there with her for, you know, from her six months until she died. But my family didn't have a lot of resources when it came to making meaning. Mm-hmm. So I think if they had more resources, we could have done something together and actually would have been vulnerable together and listen to each other's grief and grown stronger as a family if we did that. But again, you know, it was just a, we didn't have much resource as modern people and we didn't, and our, our, our own culture 
um, doesn't really have anything to say about pets. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's, you know, why I wrote that chapter. Yeah. I really feel that, <laughs> you know, you know, um, so, you know, you've, you've given us so many reasons why ritual is so important when we're tending to our grief and we're, we're going through something traumatic. Um, you know, can you, can you speak a little bit about other times to do rituals? Like when it is, is it a good time to do a ritual? Do you have to be in a place of pain? Can you, can you talk about that? Yes, you only have to be in a place of pain. <laughs> I know the answer, but please, please tell everyone. <laughs> no, of course. I mean, that's why the subtitle in the book is, you know, 75 rituals for times of loss, celebration and change. And I think those are, you know, those are the three gateways. Um, you know, something happens that we've talked about loss this whole time, but also you know, change can also be celebratory. Um, moments of birth or new beginnings, moving into a new home or getting a new job or being in a new relationship or, you know, your kid um, becomes a big brother or a big sister. You know, there's so many moments or becoming a grandparent. I mean, that's a huge one for a lot of people. So these moments, but they're, they're also identity changing moments you know, or their life-changing moments. So moving into a new home, that's a, that's a wonderful thing, but it's also, it's also a, for many people, it could be a struggle, you know, or even becoming a big brother, or big sister. I mean, that could be a, that could be a beautiful moment. That could also be a struggle. You know, there could be moments of jealousy or resistance or, you know, but there's a change in identity that happens with those moments. Um, they're celebratory, but there's also a change. And so the ritual itself helps to affirm the change, but also transform the person. This is where ritual and ceremony meet. Ceremonies are affirmational. They affirm something or confirm something and, and rituals are transformational. And this is a kind of this understanding was broken down by another ethnographer named Victor Turner. The, the difference between affirming someone in a new role and transforming something or someone. And so we need to walk in a ceremonial and ritualistic way in our lives so that we can continue to change as things change. Life always is changing. We someone new walks in, someone old leaves. A new relationship begins, an old relationship ends. We are in a new house, we leave an old house. We start a new job, we end an old job. There's, a, I mean, that's the reason I call the book Hello, Goodbye, is we're constantly saying hello and goodbye. But we have become severely disconnected from making those moments matter, from actually being good hosts, you know, to actually welcoming or saying goodbye. Um, and so all, all, most of the time, many of us are just trying to keep pace with our lives and keep pace with the change happening. And so we're running, we're racing through these moments, racing through them. It happened with the pandemic. 
you know, suddenly like life changed. And then so many of us are like trying desperately to return to normal. You know, it's understandable, but it is not at all what's needed in a crisis. You know, the word crisis itself speaks to what's needed. The word itself, the etymology of the word crisis means to distinguish or discern. To basically say, this time is different than the time that came that was. This is not that time. This is this time. Different skills are needed. Different resources are needed. Different ways are needed. You know, to be able to learn how to distinguish what was from what is, is a very, very important part of ritual. So that we make these marks and distinctions so that we don't confuse ourselves. You know, for instance, I interviewed almost 300 people for this book. And one of them was a woman who worked at her job for like 35, 38 years. Long time, by the way, to be at one job. She retired, didn't do really anything to mark the moment, and then was waking up every day for two years with anxiety attacks because her psyche still thought she was in the job. So she was worried that her boss was mad at her, she was late for work, or she was missing a project. And it wasn't until she did a ritual that she was able to discern that time is not this time anymore. And she needed to see it before her. And she needed to be witnessed in it. Like it was too big to do on her own. She needed other people to look at her and say, this is happening. You're retired. You know, you're not in that life anymore. You have new mm -hmm. purpose. You have a new identity. And the ritual is really was the gathering place for the people. And it was an opportunity for her to see that her life had changed. Yeah, so it brings clarity to the moment. It brings clarity to the situation, the time, the place, not just physically, but emotionally and symbolically. It, I, what you're saying to me, it feels like you can see what's real. Yeah, I'd say the other word is understanding. Mm -hmm. It brings a sense of understanding um, because change is, is disorienting. So it brings orientation. You know, so we can actually look around and because like life, if you don't slow down or stop, you know, you still think you're on the same path, but like the, you might be on a totally different path and not know it. You know, there's a, a comparison. I talk about ritual, which is a, in the book, which is about Karen's C-A-I-R-N-S. They're the stack of stones on a path. And this is a great metaphor for ritual because we could be walking on the, on the path, right? But there's someone that came before you or many people to stack these rocks to say, don't keep going, turn here. That's not the right path anymore. The right path is now to turn, change the path. You know, and ritual works in a very similar way, which is it's an opportunity to when as we're crossing a threshold to not think that we are on the same path but to turn or even better word is to return to what's important to where you are now to who you are now you know to really come back and to look at your life and to see what's changed
And so they, they serve as a very, you know, a similar marking moment. You know, you mark thresholds so that you can discern to not keep on going in the same direction. Something changed. I'm so glad you brought that word in, threshold. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, you know, what, what, what could happen to a person? Like, let's just speculate or, or fantasize um, someone who brings ritual into their life and, and makes it a daily practice. Like, how, how might that affect their lives? To make ritual into a daily practice? Mm-hmm. Or a, integrate it into their lives, a regular practice, maybe not daily, but something that, um, you know, they, they do regularly. Yeah. So for instance, a daily practice would be, you know, a ritual upon waking up in the morning. Right. So that's a very good example of change. You know, you're no longer sleeping. You woke up. Here's the thing. Some people didn't. Some people did not wake up this morning, but you did. So there's two things you can do. Number one, you can go on Instagram or Facebook or play, you know, Wordle on your phone or whatever. You can get up and take a shower and eat breakfast and try and get to your desk for work. Basically, just ignore the fact that you woke up. Or you can wake up and not take it for granted. Because that moment mattered. Or you're remembering that that moment mattered. So you can take some time to acknowledge that this happened. You woke up and it wasn't a guaranteed thing. And one day it won't, but it happened today and it might happen again. And the ritualizing of that moment is in a way the benefit of it is to turn towards the the sacredness of, of life, to remember the sacredness of life and to make it sanctified or to make it whole, to bring it back together, bring it back into your memory and start your day remembering. You know, another really easy example is during writing the entire book of Hello Goodbye, every night before I went to bed, I took a coffee filter for the next morning and with a pencil, I wrote a reminder to my morning self. For everything I learned that day, an important lesson or anything I wanted my morning self to remember, I wrote it a one sentence on the coffee filter and then I would go to bed and I'd wake up in the morning and before making coffee, I'd look at that reminder and it made my coffee experience from routine to ritual because it was an opportunity for me to remember which is a very core function of ritual is to help us remember, to remember. Um, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer says in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she says, our elders tell us ceremony is our people's way to remember, to remember. Why? Because life and being human is so easy to forget. So easy to forget what it means to be human. You know, because it's just going so fast and there's so many things that are overwhelming and distracting and tries to 
you know, wrestle for priority of your life. So we need these little reminders, these, you know, oh yeah, that, you know, like I woke up or I went to bed or, you know, I'm eating or someone's visiting or whatever. We need these moments that to help us remember what's important. Because if we don't do that consistently, we forget. Yeah. And I, I see how that then snowballs into remembering gratitude, remembering to have awe for what is happening in your life, remembering love or passion that you have for someone or something, you know, it, it, it would have to touch all parts of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, there's many consequences. I mean, some days it could be gratitude. Other days it could be, you know, um, praise other days. It could be, um, you know, feeling of, of grief and longing. I mean, it really, there's no like set determination of consequence of doing something like that. You know, every day for me is different. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a ritual in the morning of one of them of lighting the candles on my altar and I sing a song while I'm lighting it. And basically the song is the, it's a spiritual that that the lyrics are, this may be the last time. And, you know, that helps doing that little ritual of lighting the candles helps me reorient to the very true reality that we always forget that it could be the last. And by remembering that it reorients me towards some of the things you mentioned, gratitude, praise, appreciation, humility, whatever it is, you know, and just doing that simple ritual enriches my life so profoundly because then when I come on a podcast like this, and if this was the last one, the last one I ever did, you're damn well right. I'm going to show up with all of my heart and all of my learned wisdom and give it my all because, and that's a very real possibility. One podcast in the future today might be my last. So bringing that uncertainty in and consideration in actually enriches. It's not something I fear. Mm-hmm. It's something that um, I can behold, which is a great word, by the way. We should use that word more often to actually hold something and elevate it which is the word B, when you put the word B in front of a word, it's the enhancement of. So I'm not just holding my life, but I'm beholding it. I'm raising it up to admire and proclaim and praise this life, you know, which is a really good antidepressant, by the way. Well, I, speaking from my personal experience, you know, I, I feel that that comes through when, when you are speaking about your work, when I, I've listened to many of your podcasts, I'm actually a student of yours and the way that you um, show up for all of us and, and share all of your wisdom and, and everything that you've, you've learned and experienced. Like, I always feel you show up with your whole heart and thank you. say thank you for that because it's, it doesn't go unnoticed. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's not always comfortable, but it's, um, 
I'm trying, I'm doing my best to model both for myself and other people um, what, you know, a genuine offering, a genuine heartfelt offering could be in a time where we really are um, experiencing a great displacement of authenticity um, in place of performance. And, um, and that's just not how I am. And that's not how I want to, that's not who I want the world to be. And so I'm putting my stake in the ground for, you know, genuine engagement and caring and slowing down with people and, um, and letting myself be vulnerable, um, not as a bad thing, but as a way, as a point of connection. You know, I'm very good with boundaries too, but I also, I'm like, you know, it's like skin. There's a certain permeability that needs to happen between us. And, um, you know, and I think we, I think, I think not too long ago, you know, and certain cultures today do this very well still, you know, a certain sense of um, genuine connection and slowing down with each other. Um, but our modern culture is really just on a tilt towards, you know, productivity overhaul and, you know, speed and tech and money and, you know, and so we have to reclaim that so we don't lose our humanity. Well, Day, I could ask you questions for about 12 more hours, but <laughs> um, I am hoping if, if you're willing, you'll maybe send us off with reading something from one of your books. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, let me read the conclusion of Hello, Goodbye, or at least a portion of it. Um, every hello is a goodbye, and every goodbye a hello. Births and deaths, departures and arrivals, endings and beginnings, there cannot be one without the other. We wave our hands to welcome, and we wave them the exact same way to bid farewell. Even though at times we may believe that life only moves in one direction, if we can step back and broaden our gaze, we can see that these hello goodbye moments hinge on a door that swings back and forth. This bit has been a book about rituals. Rituals place us right at that door's threshold. And their purpose is to help us acknowledge that something happened. Something has changed. We are no longer the person we were. We no longer have the relationship we did. We no longer call this place home. Our child is not the same. Our body is not the same. This time is not the same. Rituals mark distinctions, helping us recognize what was and what is, so that we can wonder how it came to be. How did my child become a teenager? How did I just survive cancer? How did I get to be 50 years old? To wonder like this takes real courage and a deeper vulnerability because to see change is to be changed. I'll stop there. Uh, everyone listening and watching, please go out and buy Day's books. If you don't have them already, please sign up for his teacher training. But Day, t tell us, um, tell the audience how they can get more information about your work and, and all of your offerings. Sure. Um, morningalters.com 
M-O-R-N-I-N-G-A-L-T-A-R-S.com um, is the hub of my, of my art, um, some of my teachings, and especially one of the, which you're a part of, one of the things I'm most proud of these days is this teacher training, which is an opportunity to learn the practice um, and a deeper dive into nature, art, and ritual. And um, yeah, I'm sure you could talk about that and how your experience has been. But, um, but uh, and then I'd say other ways to get in touch with me are Instagram, if you'd like, you know, a burst of beauty in your day. Um, Morning Altars is the name of the Instagram account. And, um, and I have a lot of events coming up. So um, in addition to the teacher training, um, I'm going to be in Minnesota. I'm going to be in New York City, actually at, with you. Yes, um, with us. <laughs> yeah, this summer. Um, so you can visit um, United Palace's website to see when and what and where. Um, and a bunch of other events that um, you can check in or join my, my newsletter mailing list. Oh, that's another thing I never talk about, but I should because... I'm quite proud of the content I'm putting out in my newsletters. Um, they are deeply reflective about my own life or what's happening in the world, but told through a deep spiritual lens and a genuine lens. Um, and so I'm not just, you know, putting out schlock. I actually am really trying to speak from the heart um, and speak about my life in the world and how we can find our way back to our humanity. Mm, it's a beautiful newsletter. It's, it's from the heart. That's how I receive it heart to heart. So thank you. You do, you do a great job with that. Um, yes, we're, we're really, um, I hope everyone checks out all of those um, resources you just shared. We're really looking forward to having you here in July. Um, there will be information soon about that event at upspiritualarts.org. Um, and we also have a series we created with Day, um, a beautiful free video series on our website that take, Day takes you through the seven steps of the Morning Altars practice. So I, I hope everyone checks that out as well. Um, Day, thank you so much for, for this conversation. Uh, you shared so many tools and so much wisdom and so much of your personal experience. And um, we're, we're really, all of us here at the United Palace are so appreciative. I'm so, I'm so grateful to have such a, um, a interested and um, collaborative partnership with you and keep doing your good work in the world. And I can't wait to make beauty with you guys this summer. Yes. And to all of our viewers and listeners, thank you for participating in Open Heart Conversations. Until next time, take care.